Hello, everybody. I'm so glad that you're with us tonight. Uh, if you're tuning in, if you would, drop us a quick message in the chat section. I'd love to know who is uh, on the program. And because we're have, we have a limited time tonight, I need to be done by maybe 10 or 15 minutes before the hour. We have Bible school right after this. I, I need to get right into the questions because, as always, you guys gave me some some outstanding questions and uh, want to make sure we have plenty of time to go through them. And, and guys, thank you so much. I really enjoy spending this time uh, with you young folk. And I, I wish we could do this in person. Maybe someday in, this, in the near future we can. But I, I quite enjoy getting to do this. And um, even as we go, uh, please remember that we do have the chat section. So if anybody has additional questions or if I say something that's not 100% clear and you'd like for me to explain it maybe a different way, or you want to ask a follow-up question, please feel free. Moms and dads, please participate as well. Help your kids. Make sure that they're understanding the, the answers that are given tonight. But guys, thank you for the questions. You guys just do an outstanding job with this. All of you do. All right, first question. Did Noah's sons have kids when they went into the ark? So another way to ask this is, did Noah have grandchildren while they were in the ark? Um, were any of his grandchildren in the ark? And the answer is no. Uh, the Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2, also in 1 Peter chapter 3, that there were eight people in the ark. So there was Noah and his wife, Noah's three sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. All right, So there's three boys and three girls and then the mom and dad. So that we have eight people in the ark. And then the Bible says in Genesis 10 verse 1, Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood. So they, Noah's kids, only had kids after the flood, well after the flood. All right, but good question. Um, let's move to the next one. This also has to do with Noah. Did Noah bring seeds to plant for food and beauty for when they exited the ark? Now, I love this question because there's two parts to it. Did, did he have seeds to plant for food, but also for beauty, which... Uh, you, the, the person who asked this question, I'm so glad that you noticed that when God makes something, it's not just to feed us. It's not just for one function, right? It can also be for, it can be something beautiful. And the Bible actually says in Ecclesiastes that God makes everything beautiful in his time. So it's really important that we recognize that God is interested not only in feeding us, taking care of our daily needs, but also in making things beautiful all around us. All right, I see here evening. Zach and Xander lodged in from home. Uh, their father are listening in from the office. Outstanding. Thank you so much for joining us. All right, so here's the question. Did Noah bring seeds to plant for food and for beauty after they, uh, for when they exited the ark? So let's come to Genesis chapter 8. So this is after the flood is over, right? The water is, is going down, and Noah is wondering, is it time yet for us to leave the ark? So he sends out a raven. And the raven doesn't come back. But Noah then sends out a dove. <clears throat> and eventually we get to this, verse 11. And the dove came into him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. Abated means that they had gone down. The, the water level had gone down. So now the, the earth on the top, there was no more water resting on the earth. There, the ground was still a bit soggy. Uh, but most of the water, or the water on the on the top had gone. Now, what I want you to see here is that an olive leaf 
was available. So the earth had started to bring forth vegetation, plants, vegetables, trees, all of those things had started to grow again. So the earth was naturally producing these plants and vegetables, trees, which would give seed. Now, I do not doubt that Noah, as he entered the ark, he had to have had food for the animals, right? And for himself or his family. So he could have used some of the uh, food items that he brought into the ark and things like corn, any type of fruit, it comes with a seed. When he exits the ark, he could plant those things and they would then grow. <clears throat> but the earth, the way God put the earth together is that uh, it would naturally start to bring forth fruit, vegetation, trees, that, and all of those things come with their own seeds. So later in this same chapter, at the very end of it, God says this, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. So you're going to go through the normal run of seasons, but notice seed time. He says the earth is going to do that. That's a good question. I never thought about that. Never been asked that before. All right, next question. <clears throat> what language did people speak before the Tower of Babel? Now, most of these questions, um, I know where to go in the Bible to give you an answer. And even on this, I know where the, the verses are about the Tower of Babel, but there, there aren't really any verses that tell us what language they were speaking before the Tower of Babel. Some people say it was Hebrew, but that's because uh, the early part of the book of Genesis is written in Hebrew, right? The Moses, when, when he wrote it, he wrote it in Hebrew. But that was Moses writing it. That was not what language Noah was speaking or Shemham and Japheth and these guys. So what language did the people speak before the Tower of Babel? We really don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. People have guesses. And if you ask just the average historian, they will go back to the oldest written records that we have. And the oldest writing is something, it's a cuneiform in the Sumerian language. So some people say they were that not only was it written, but maybe the Sumerian language was also spoken. But we really don't know. Uh, because th this question, I, I had to do a little homework, actually, to try to get a good answer for this. I wanted to see what other people have said. So I actually went on the internet and printed out some information on it. I think I have, uh, yeah, this is nine pages of, of details. People have studied this. <clears throat> I'm going to give you now the name, the name of the people who study this stuff. They are called philologists. And a philologist is someone who studies the development of languages. And the best philologists in the world, what they have said is there, there isn't one language that produced all the languages we have in the world today. In the world right now, we have over 6,500 different languages. And when people study going back, back, back in history to find from which language did all of these rise, they cannot pin it down to one language. <clears throat> now, if, and maybe you've heard of this teaching of evolution, that we all came from monkeys, that kind of thing. If that was true, right? then that means there would have been one language and all the other languages would have, over time, naturally came from that one language. Languages would have evolved, just like people, they say, evolved. The problem is 
when they study the languages, they cannot go back to one common language or ancestor language. Well, that is exactly what we would expect if the Bible is true. The Bible tells us that they were all speaking one language and then God confused them at the Tower of Babel. <clears throat> and as the, as the people walked away, they were speaking a, a multiple languages. We don't know how many, but if the studies are correct, they've, they've narrowed it down to about 12 different languages that would have that I can say gave rise to all the languages we have now. So the 6,500, they say probably came from about 12. Well, that's very interesting that they say they came from about 12 because in the Bible, it does say that God divided the nations into 12. So I, I find it interesting that they've actually studied that out and said, yeah, there's about 12 different languages that they came from. So what the philologists have studied actually matches the details that we do have in the Bible. We just don't have a lot of like names of various languages that they, they spoke. So I'm afraid I can't give a, a perfect answer to that question. I don't know what language they were speaking, but I do know that from what people have actually been able to study, it does work well with the story we have in the Bible that instead of coming from just one language, at one time, a, a multitude of dozen languages were formed, and from those dozen or so languages, we have all, all the languages of today. All right, I hope I, hope I explained that easy enough. Um, it's, it's quite a complicated subject, actually, but very fascinating one. Somebody says, I barely know one language. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. Dengalangkurechilangkurochina, pangono. Dengalangkurechichewa, that's chichewa. All I said was I can speak chichewa just a little bit. I used to be very fluent in it, but I haven't lived in Malawi in so long. And ek kan a bikkie Afrikaans praat, maar ek is a bikkie bang om Afrikaans te gebruik. Because I make, ek maak baie fouta. I hope I said that correctly. <laughs> All right. Somebody else has said here, the Bible is true. Nobody spoke the original language after God confounded that language. Yes, I, I would agree with that. All right, next question. <clears throat> this is a very good one. This is one I, do, I have received before, but it's a great question. How do we know that Christianity is the right religion? Great question. Okay, so let's see if I can give you a Bible verse and then also give you a few additional thoughts on this. <clears throat> All right. When we look at the book that we have, the Bible, right? I think that this is a miracle, this book, because it was written by over 40 different authors. And those authors, many of them did not know each other. They lived over a span of 2,000 years. And as they wrote, everything that they write, even though they didn't know each other, and their, their individual books they wrote were not collected into one book like we have it now until after Jesus had gone back to heaven. And yet everything they wrote works perfectly together. No mistakes, no contradictions. It matches uh, the history that can be confirmed, right? That what we actually find in history books works consistent. It is consistent with the Bible. And the way that we can read in the Bible about prophetic events, the Bible is able to accurately predict the future. The other books that go with other religions, they cannot do that. So in Hinduism, they use something called the Gitas, 
the Bhagavad Gita and different Gitas like that, and the Vedas, those, that's their holy writings in, in Hinduism. They can't prophesy. In Islam, they use the Quran, but the Quran does not contain prophecies. It has one prophecy and it's very vague. And it was just Muhammad talking about who was going to win a war. And whenever you're talking about somebody winning a war, it's a coin toss, right? It's, it's, there's only two sides. So he picked the winning side. So there's really not much prophetic material and no prophetic material in these other books. But in our book, we just for the coming of Jesus, right? For him to come to the earth, be born of a virgin, live his life, die on the cross, rise again. So when you look at his entire life, we have over 48 prophecies, just about 48 in the Old Testament, and every one of them were fulfilled perfectly. And that's just about the life of Christ. That's not counting the hundreds of other prophecies that have come to pass. So that's one thing I think we should take into account is that as God has revealed himself to mankind, in the Old Testament, he did it through the nation of Israel. And then in the New Testament, of course, through Jesus and the apostles, all of the records of what these prophets said and what the apostles said we have in the Bible. And all of that stuff can be verified as true. And these prophecies keep coming to pass. And even now, some of these prophecies are still happening, still being fulfilled. All right. And the other thing that I think we should factor in, Acts 17, verse 31 it says here, because he, God, has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. He, he set it up like this. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. So all men can be sure that God is real, that he is going to one day judge mankind. How do we know the standard that God will use to judge everybody. He, he showed us the standard when he raised Jesus from the dead. So unlike any other religion in Christianity, we have the claim, we have the verifiable claim that Jesus went to the cross and then rose from the dead. No other religion has that. So we, again, I, I'm going to link this to prophecy a little bit. Jesus explained how he would die over a year before it happened. Now, does it no I don't think any of you know when you're going to die. We don't know when anybody's going to die. We don't know how people are going to die. We can't predict any of that. Jesus, he actually gave nine details about his death over a year before it happened. He told people where it would happen. He said who would do it. He said what was going to happen, how it, precisely they were going to do it. And he said what would happen afterwards. Now, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, right? He said he would do it, then he did it. And there's a lot of reasons to believe that he did rise from the dead. That there was never, his body was never found. The tomb remained empty. Furthermore, after Jesus went back to heaven, the apostles went everywhere telling people that, listen, we saw Jesus. We walked with him for 40 days after he rose from the dead. So we know he's alive. Now, the question is, why would they make that up? They didn't get rich. They didn't get famous. They got hated. They got persecuted. And all but one of them died a very painful death. The only one that died a natural death was the Apostle John. And even they tried to kill him. So these men stood to gain nothing by making something up about Jesus rising from the dead. 
it, it literally cost them their lives. And that helps us also believe that they did in fact meet with Jesus after he rose from the dead. And what about the apostle Paul? Before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he hated Christians, he killed Christians. Now, what would cause him to change? What would cause him to leave Judaism, which is the Jewish religion, and become what we now know as a Christian? Why, why would he convert to that? Because he met the resurrected Jesus. Now, why would he make that up? He wouldn't go around telling people that Jesus rose from the dead. He hated Christianity. So whatever happened to Paul must have been very real to bring about that much of a change. All right, so how do we know Christianity is the right religion? Our book is very great evidence for that and also the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, just so that you have a verse that goes with the idea of the Bible proving that we have the right religion, Jesus said in John 5, 39, search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and they are they which testify of me. So Jesus was telling the Jews uh, four, he gave them four different reasons they could trust what he was saying. He said, number one, John the Baptist said I was the Messiah, so you, you guys believe him. You, you guys think he was a good preacher. Number two, the miracles I'm doing, that would uh, also support the claim I'm making to be the Savior. Number three, God spoke from heaven and said I was his son. And number four, go search the scriptures, look in the Bible, and you'll see all these prophecies about me. All right, so very good question. This is one of those questions we could take an entire hour on, so I hope that uh, is, is enough of an answer there. Amen. All right, this one. Can we see spirits? Interesting question and a little bit spooky. Sorry, that's corny. <laughs> so here's how I'm going to answer this. There's three different things we can talk about. Can we see angels? Can we see angels? Because in the Bible, angels are called spirits. All right. You can see here Hebrews 1 verse 7. And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Can we see angels? Yes. Not always, right? Angels can operate without a physical body, right? Because of this spiritual aspect to them, right? So they can move about without us seeing them. However, they can also manifest in a physical body. Now, it's an angelic body. It's not a human body, but they can be seen. And many times we have stories in the Bible of people seeing an angel. They, when, when they saw the angel, they first thought it was a man. Almost every time they think it's just a man. And then the angel does something that a man can't do, like floating up to heaven or, uh, or being uh, calling down fire from heaven, something like that. You have that in the book of Judges. Uh, and, and then the people know, wow, this isn't just a man. This is certainly an angel. So the Bible says here in Hebrews 13 too, be not forgetful to entertain strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So they're talking to this person. They think it's just a, a man, but come to find out later on, they realize it, it was an angel. All right, so can we see him? Yes, yes, it is possible. Now, here's the next part to this. Uh, can we see human spirits, right? Because all of us, we have a body, we have a soul, and we have a spirit. Now, our spirit, it is our breath, right? That is part of our spirit, but the human spirit also has other jobs, like our conscience, that's a part of our spirit. Some of our emotions go along with our spirit. And when a person dies, right, their breath leaves their body, 
And the Bible tells us that the, bo the body will go to the grave, but the spirit of a man goes back to God. All right, I'll show you that verse, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. It talks about a man dying here, and it says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, that's the burial, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. So the spirit goes back to God. I do not know of any verse that says we, in our mortal bodies right now, the way I am, there's, I don't know of any verse that says we can see another human spirit, okay? Now, people up in heaven, can they see that? That's another story. And I really don't have a lot of verses about that. So I'm not gonna speak too much to that point. But I, I'm, I, don't, I can't think of any verse that says we can see other human spirits. Right. Now, I know some people say, you know, I, their grandmother died long ago, and now they say my grandmother came to visit me and I saw her ghost or her spirit. There's no verse in the Bible that says that can actually happen, like on a consistent basis. There's one time in 1 Samuel chapter 28 when God allowed something very extraordinary, very special to happen with Samuel the prophet, but there were some very unique circumstances there. There's nothing that would indicate that can always happen. All right, and then one other category, there's angels, there's human spirits, and then there's unclean spirits, right? Can we see unclean spirits? Let's take a look here. Revelation 16, verse 13. So this is, I wanna say almost the opposite of an angel. A lot of people think that these unclean spirits or devils, that they came from, or demons, maybe you've heard that that they came from fallen angels. And that, that might be true. Again, the Bible doesn't really go into a long explanation on that, or hardly any at all. But John says this, Revelation 16, 13, and I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So the dragon is, uh, that's the shape that Satan takes sometimes, not always, but he can, I think that's like his original shape. And then the beast, that's another name for the Antichrist. And then the false prophet is just, he's the uh, sidekick for the Antichrist. So like you have Batman and Robin, in, in, the, new, in the, the book of Revelation, you have the beast and the false prophet. So he's kind of like the partner for him. And John says, I saw three unclean spirits and they had the shape like a frog. Well, this shouldn't surprise us too, too much, that the fact that he could see him, because when Jesus got baptized, the Bible says the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the, a clean spirit, the Holy Spirit came down in the shape of a dove, in the form of a dove. So in the spirit world or the spiritual realm, those spirits can take on various shapes. And the unclean spirits here, they have the shape of a frog. This isn't to say all of them appear like that, but John saw this. Now, it, I think we could say that maybe John was allowed to see something special and that you and I, we probably shouldn't expect to be able to see these things. I think God only under very special circumstances would, uh, if I can say, peel back the curtain of our physical world and allow us to see what's going on in the spiritual world. Okay, but a good question, deep one. Next one, why did David pick up five stones if he only used one? Okay, that is a great question. Why five stones? Let's go to the story here. Um, shame, I didn't write that verse down. Let me see if I can guess what verse that's at. I think it's right about here, is that right? 
I'm a little too early there. All right, First Samuel 17, this is the chapter where David fights Goliath. I'm going to get you the verse where he gets the five stones. There it is. 1 Samuel 17, verse 40. And he took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a scrip. That's like a, a piece of leather that you would wrap around it. That's a scrip. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. So he chose five stones. Now, I'll tell you the most common answer to this is David thought he might miss, right? So he wanted to have a few extra bullets for his gun. Um, and, and if you just think as a, as a man, you'd have to think, what if I miss? Let me be ready just in case. So he had some, some spare stones. And I think that, that makes sense. I, I don't really have any problem with that answer. But let me maybe give one other possibility. And, and to be honest, I think that first answer can go with or work with this second answer. Did you know that Goliath had four brothers? He had four brothers. So it's, it's quite common, right? If your big brother, which I assume Goliath was the big brother, because uh, he was three meters tall, if Goliath is going out there to battle, there's a good chance that his brothers are, are there waiting to help right, just in case something happens to him. And maybe David knew this and said, if, if there's Goliath and four brothers, then I need five stones, just in case the brothers want to get involved as well. So David was ready. <clears throat> Let, let's say maybe if he misses, he has a, a second, a third, fourth try. Or if the brothers get involved, he's ready for them too. So I think it might have been both things that led him to... Uh, Take the five stones. All right. And then this question. What did Jesus preach about salvation? Well, now, there we need more than an hour to properly answer that because he said a lot about salvation. The very first thing that Jesus preached publicly is right here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the first thing that we learn here is repentance is necessary for salvation. And the word repent, it means to change your mind. It's an inward change of your attitude. So when we think of repent, it's not just stop doing bad and start doing good, but even in your heart and in your mind, it's why do you want to stop doing bad? And do you have a desire to do good? So it really starts inside with your intentions, and then if you, if you change the attitude of your heart and mind, it should, that change should then show up in the way you live. But there's more to it because repentance is not just changing your mind about how you live. It's changing your mind about what you're trusting to take you to heaven. It's changing your mind about how you can please God. So when we think about repentance, it's actually turning away from your way of living, whatever that is, and rather living the way God wants you to live. So even if you're trying to do your best, say, God, here's my best. God says, okay, thank you for doing your best, but this is what I want you to do. So there we would have to say, okay, God, then rather than do it my way, even though I'm trying, I'll do it 
your way. So repentance can, can also, it does also mean that. So Jesus on other occasions, he said things like this, John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So many verses like this that Jesus uh, talks about believing on him, accepting what he's saying about the Father, about himself. And if people come to him, uh, he says in another place, he will in no wise cast them out. If a sinner comes to Jesus and says, I'm trusting you as the Savior, I want to follow you, Jesus never turns them away. He always accepts that. Um, let me actually show that verse to you. John 6, 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Another time Jesus said this, I am the door. By me if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. So think of Jesus as the entryway into, not just into heaven, but into a relationship with God. Because we don't have to wait to, until we get to heaven to have a good relationship with God. We, we can love him, we can know him even now. But the only way, the only passageway to that relationship to God is Jesus. So Jesus said in one other place, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And actually, this helps answer one of those other questions we had. How do we know Christianity is the right way, the right religion? We can just take Jesus' statement here, right? He said, I am the only way. Now, the reason we believe this is because he rose from the dead, right? He backed up his words with that great evidence of, of coming back from the dead. Okay, so I, like I said, we could go on and on about the things Jesus said, but I, I think that sums it up pretty good. All right, uh, follow-up question here. Oh, I see here somebody's put repent equals turn from unbelief to belief. That, that's a very good way to put it, actually. Yeah, I like that. And then the question, what is pasture? That's a field where you put animals so that they can graze and eat. So Jesus had been talking in John 10 about how his uh, followers were like sheep. All right, so that's why he uses that, uh, that example there, that illustration. All right, next question. Has anyone found Rachel's grave or the pillar which marked it? Interesting question. All right, oh, I got the wrong, sorry, I typed in the wrong number. Genesis 35 and verse 19. Let's start there. It says, and Rachel died. Uh, this is Jacob's wife, right? Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. So the original name of Bethlehem was Ephrath. And verse 20 says, and Jacob set a pillar upon her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. Now, forgive me, we don't even need verse 21. We can stop there. So this pillar, as far as I can remember, I, I, I'll maybe check my notes later on this, but I'm pretty sure if I remember right, this is the first tombstone that we read about in the Bible. I said, I'll check that just to be sure. But in any event, Jacob sets up this tombstone, like you see in the picture below me, probably not this fancy, but he sets one up to mark the grave. Now remember, Moses is writing this, okay? So as Moses is writing this, and that being said, this might've actually been a scribe 
even a little bit after Moses, in the days of Joshua, they might have written this as well. Now that I think about it, must have been somebody in Joshua's day. So my point in saying that, when he says, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day, that was written about 300 years or so after after Rachel died. So that means they were able to find this grave three, 400 years later. So I would assume that they found the pillar. I don't know how else they would have known that it was Rachel's grave. They must have been able to recognize that pillar. And if, now just from Genesis, we see that the grave was able to be found hundreds of years later. But here in 1 Samuel, this is 700 years later, okay? And it says in 1 Samuel 10, verse 2, When thou art departed from me today, then thou shalt find two men by Rachel's sepulcher. A sepulcher is a fancy word for grave. By Rachel's sepulcher in the border of Benjamin at Zelzah. That's pretty much the same place as, as Bethlehem. This is a more precise way to locate it. In the border of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say unto thee, and then Samuel tells Saul what they're going to say. So the reason I read that verse with you is so that you know 700 years later, Samuel still knows where that grave is at. This is actually in Judaism, in the Jewish religion, the third most holy place in their religion. And to this day, they still, people have built up, uh, some people built a big wall around it. Somebody came later and built a roof over it. And even today, you can go visit Rachel's grave. The way that it's located, it's fascinating. As the Jews were taken into captivity uh, in, in 600 BC, they had to walk past this pillar, past this tombstone. And the Jews think that as they pass by this grave of Rachel, Rachel is considered the mother of the Jewish nation because she was Jacob's wife, right? Jacob later became Israel, so the children of Israel and Rachel. So they think that as they were walking past the grave that Rachel was weeping for them. And there's actually a verse that uh, this actually, this was written right about the time they were going into, here it is, into captivity. Jeremiah 31, 15, thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rahul, that's another spelling for Rachel, Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. So they say that Rachel, as they walked past the grave, was very sad and, and weeping over, over their captivity. Um, I actually found a picture. This, is, this picture was taken in 1912, but this, in 1912, that's what Rachel's tomb looked like. Now you see that building there. The tomb is actually inside of that, right? Her grave and the marker. Uh, but somebody, as I said, built up walls and then eventually they built up a roof. And now it's much prettier now. They have a bunch of signs around it. And it's, it's a very uh, famous place for people to visit. But interesting question. I've never gotten that one before. So glad for that. All right, uh, next one. This is a tough one. This one's heartbreaking. If God knows that a baby will die, why allow the baby to be born? Now, I've given a, maybe a shorter version of this question. I'm going to read you the full question here. If God allowed a mother to have a baby, and he knew that the baby would die at birth and then go to heaven, why did God not just keep the baby in heaven? Okay. This, this is, of course, 
a difficult subject to deal with because we know that it happens and it's always very, very sad, regardless of who it happens to. But it, that being said, it's a very good question. Very good question. So I, let me try to give you a couple verses that do, I think, help answer this. Isaiah 57 and verse 1, the Bible says here, the righteous perisheth, so the righteous die. Now, a baby, right? This verse applies to not just babies, right? But anybody that's living right. But a baby is righteous. The baby hasn't done anything wrong. I think we would probably say the baby is innocent, right? Because the baby hasn't done anything right either, but the baby hasn't done anything wrong. So it's innocent, doesn't deserve any bad things. The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart. They don't think about it. And merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. So here's one thing that we have to consider, that even though the child is born and doesn't live very long, or sometimes what we call stillborn, they're, they're, they're born without any life, God could be preventing a lot of pain and suffering. God might know that this child, what this child is going to grow up and experience is, is just too harsh. So rather take the child early. But then this, this question is still, we really haven't answered it. I'm just giving you one thing to think about along these lines. If God knows that there's going to be suffering, then why allow the child to be born at all? Why not just keep the child in heaven because he knows it's going to end up there? Well, really, we could say the same thing about me, right? Why let me live 45 years? If I'm, I'm going to end up with God, I'm going to live with him forever because I'm saved. But if he knew I was going to end up there, why let me come down here, right? Why, why let me live and go through all the problems of life and just to end up in, in heaven? Well, this actually goes back to why does God allow any bad thing to happen to a good person? And it's a tough question. It's a, it's a tough reality that we have to deal with. And... The only thing I can say to that is in order for us to have a real, genuine relationship with God, he has to give mankind choices. We have to be allowed to choose between right and wrong. And way, way back when Adam and Eve chose wrong, that is what started all, the, all these sorts of problems. And God, God knew that, yes, babies would die, but remember this, even for a moment. That mother getting to hold that child even for a moment can still be a precious memory to that mom, to that dad, getting just a few moments with that child. And through losing a child in that situation, mom, dad, the brothers and sisters involved, the family involved, they can actually learn a lot of very good lessons. They can grow closer to each other. They can learn to trust God. It, it really builds their faith. There's a lot that can be learned through death. So in Ecclesiastes 7, uh, let's see here, verse 2, it says, It is better to go to the house of mourning, that's like a funeral home, than to go to the house of feasting, like a party house. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance, that's how your face looks, the heart is made better. So even these terrible situations, when a baby is, is stillborn or, or doesn't live very long, although it's incredibly sad, God is still able to comfort that family, that mom and dad, 
brothers and sisters in that time. And of course, these babies, let me be quick to point out that none of these babies are in any danger of, of being punished. They, they didn't do anything wrong. So they do go directly back to God. And I think a lot of people can take great comfort in that. Solomon, actually, this question, uh, Solomon actually thought about this. So it's a very good question. The wisest man ever considered this question. He says this in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 2, Wherefore I praised the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. Now his reasoning for this was there, the, the ones that have died, their suffering is over. They don't have to look forward to any more pain and problems. The living have that. Verse 3, Yea, better is he than, than both they which hath not yet been who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. So the, the child that hasn't even been born and come into the world, that's better yet because there's no chance of him having seen any problems yet. So I'm just showing you that this is a, a very good question. A lot of people have, have considered this. And these sort of very sad things, it's a part of living in a world where God allowed mankind to choose and now we're facing the consequences for the wrong choices. All right, I see in the comments here, let me just catch up. John 3, 6, definitely that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. All right, that has to do with somebody being born again. Um, that wouldn't apply directly to, to this situation with little children or infants. Uh, but this one, suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, again, excellent verse and very true. It shows us that Jesus is concerned about uh, children and little children. In another place, it, it, it refers to them as infants. So even down to that age, that stage of life, he's interested. Um, this question, however, we're dealing with a child that is, is stillborn. Why would God allow that to happen? It's painful but that's part of living in this fallen world. So that, that's an excellent question. And whoever did ask this, if, if you would like to talk about it more, I know that sometimes it can be by a heartseer and difficult to talk about, but I'd be happy to chat with you or your family because I know it can be very sad. All right, next question. Where did God come from? Whew. All right, I'm gonna give you two answers. One is a bit silly and the other is a bit honest. <laughs> okay. And now that I've promised the silly answer, let me see if I can find it. Yeah, there we go. Habakkuk 3, verse 3. Silly answer first. God came from T-Man. There you go. So where did God come from? He came from T-Man, which is a mountain in the Middle East. Now, it, this is not answering the question. Like I said, I'm being a little silly here. This is a, a, a prophetic verse. And it's actually talking about when Jesus comes back, it tells us what path he's going to take on his way back down to the earth. And one of the stops that he'll make is in this place called Timon, and then he'll go to Mount Paran, and on, eventually he ends up in Jerusalem. <laughs> so this, this is not telling us where God originated, okay? The real answer to this is God didn't come from anywhere. He has always been, right? If God was a created being, then we could ask and answer this question. No, I mean, if, if he had told us. But God, because he's eternal and not dependent on anything else for his existence, he's always been there. So God didn't come from anywhere. He's always been. All right, age of the earth. How old is the earth? 
Now, for this question, I, I cannot turn to any verse because there is no verse in the Bible that, that any one verse that tells us how old the earth is. One man, though, his name was Usher, Bishop Usher. I believe he lived in the 1800s. He actually went into the Old Testament and read it backwards. And he wrote down all the time periods. So if it said there was 100 years here, and then a, you know 500 here and a thousand, he wrote all these time periods all the way back from Malachi all the way to Genesis. And he counted it up, if I remember correctly, 4,004 years worth of time in the Old Testament. So we often just say 4,000 years. Now we are in the year 2021, approximately. Nobody actually knows the real date. Nobody does, nobody. The calendar has changed actually three or four or five times um, in, in the last couple thousand years. So nobody is precisely sure what day this is and what year this is. If you ask a Jew, he wouldn't say we're in 2021. They actually count time a little differently, but they, they if I'm not mistaken, they're like a, a, something like 150 years behind us. So it's, they're very different. So we have to use approximate time. So I'm gonna say in the New Testament, we have about 2,000 years. And in the Old Testament, we have about 6,000 years. So if you count up the time that is mentioned in the Bible, then we have about 6,000 years. Um, there is some wiggle room, right? Even though we, we have places in the Old Testament where it tells us how much time something took, there are some some events where it doesn't tell us how long it took. So we have to leave a little bit of a gap there, a little bit of wiggle room. So some people will make that wiggle room up to 10,000 years, six to 10,000 years. Now, of course, a lot of scientists and um, geologists, they study the rocks and things like that. They say, no, 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 the earth is uh, millions and millions and millions of years old. And there's, without getting into a long explanation on the science of that, I, I wouldn't agree with that because in order to do that experiment, a scientist would have had to have been there when the earth started and taken a sample and tested that first sample to get the right readings. Then they could compare it with a sample that they took today and see how much it had aged. But as it stands, nobody was there to do that test in the beginning. Or let me say nobody in the beginning did that test. There was somebody there. Um, but nobody took a sample and tested it. What the scientist is assuming is that in the moment of the Big Bang, poof, everything explodes and then slowly things evolve and turn into what they are now and that everything starts with a, if I can say it, with an age of zero and then works upwards. But that's not how God made everything. When God built the earth, when he put everything together, he built age into it. So if I can use Adam as the example, when God made Adam, on Adam's first day of life, how old was he? How old was he? You say, well, he's one day old. Yeah, but how old did he look? He, God made Adam as a grown, fully grown man. So if, if a doctor would have tested Adam and said, all right, let's see how long you've been alive, the doctor might have said, well, your body tells us that you've been alive 30 years or 40 years or 100 years. Adam lived to be 930 years old. So we don't know on, on Adam's first day of life 
what his body would have told us that the age was. So this tells us that when God made everything in the beginning, there was already age included. So a scientist who does the test today is not going to be able to give us an accurate age because he doesn't know what the first reading would have been. Furthermore, since the earth was created, there has been Noah's flood, and Noah's flood would have drastically affected any of the tests that a geologist would do. So many of the geologists don't think there was a flood, but actually, when you study how the earth looks today, it really does support the idea of a flood. There's a lot of markings, maybe our indications all over the earth that there was what we call a cataclysmic event, this worldwide flood. All right, so as best we can tell, six to 10,000 years old, biblically, that would be the answer. All right, and I just realized that was our last question. Hey, we did pretty good. I, I wasn't checking the clock, so I'm glad we finished up at a perfect time. So I hope this has helped tonight. I hope you learned a few things. Thank you so much. I appreciate everybody uh, using the chat section tonight. Thank you. Uh, Jay Henning, oh, that last name or last part there, Kelochia. Oh, please forgive me. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing some of that, but thank you so much for participating. Appreciate you guys making time for this tonight. Uh, if anybody does want to ask a follow-up in just a moment, I'm going to have a word of prayer and we'll close the program. But you're always welcome to contact me privately if you want to ask something as a follow-up. And Lord willing, maybe in another two or, two or three months, we'll try to do another one of these programs because I really do enjoy this. Lord, thank you for this opportunity tonight. Thank you for all these great questions. Thank you for these uh, children that have asked some, some very important things. And uh, Lord, we do pray that you'd help all of us to continue to learn more, to draw closer to you. And Lord, especially when we think tonight, we've, we've talked about what Jesus said about salvation. Lord, we want to change our hearts and minds to be more like you. Whatever it is about us that needs to change, show us what that is so that we can make you smile. Father, thank you for this time. We ask it all and thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, thank you so much for your time tonight. Have a great evening further.